So Malachi chapter 3, we're just going to dive right in. We've been going through this series, Giving God Our Best. And I don't know about you, um, I've been challenged by this. You know, this is a word to a remnant people who have come out of Babylon, but Babylon hasn't come out of them. And I don't know if you ever find yourself in that scenario, but, but really this, reading this is, um, is, is putting a mirror in front of my soul, you know, and it's giving me uh, just pause to really consider what am I giving God, you know? If he really does deserve our best, am I giving God our best or my best? In chapter one, as we studied a couple weeks ago, the people here, the remnant people, the post-exile people of God, they were, they were giving God their leftovers, right? And in chapter two, we discovered the two factors of infidelity that was under the surface of their leftover worship, right? Uh, they, they were in, unfaithful in terms of spiritual leadership and also in terms of spousal loyalty. And then now chapter 3, God is going to reveal what he himself is going to do about this kind of people. What he himself is going to do about, about how he will respond to the remnant in this condition and how the remnant ought to return to him. So we're going to dive right in. Today what we're going to do, uh, you'll kind of, I'm going to kind of jump around in the chapter a little bit. We'll kind of go from the bookends and then work our way towards the middle. That's kind of what we'll do. But before we do, let's just, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we're going to get into the word here. This is not any man's word. This didn't come by the will of man but it came by your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking that your Holy Spirit would truly teach, instruct, not just our heads, but also our hearts, that you would transform our lives through your living word today. God, give us right now an anticipation that you're actually going to speak to us, that you'll speak what we need to hear, whether it's, whether it's uh, instruction and redirection or whether it's peace and encouragement, Lord, we just give you permission to speak exactly what our hearts need to hear today. This is our prayer in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right. So chapter 3 comes on the heels of chapter 2. All right. And at the end of chapter 2, there's a question. It's almost a rhetorical question, but God is voicing the question that's on their hearts. At the end of chapter 2, midway through, it says, Yet you say, in what way? So this is chapter 2, verse 17. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of, what's the next word in your Bible? Justice. justice. Okay. Some Bibles say judgment. Same word, same, uh, same Hebrew word translated either way, justice or judgment. The question is, it's, 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 to God, it's a wearying question. Where is the God of justice? I mean, people are looking around, hey, you know, the people that should be held accountable aren't being held accountable. People that are trying to do, you know, walk in the way of God, they aren't being rewarded for it. What's going on here? Where is the God of justice? And the answer comes in chapter 3, verse 1. God is going to do something, and he's going to come himself. It says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly do what? Come Come where? To his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So where is this God of judgment? Well, he's in the process of coming. 
All right, he's coming and there's a messenger who will prepare his way. And we're going to talk a little bit more, unpack that messenger concept in chapter four next week. But here's this God of justice, this God of judgment. And according to this verse, he is going to suddenly come. He's not just going to let things transpire and say, oh, well, there goes the world. Good luck. You know, no, he's going to come. He's going to come. We know as Seventh-day Adventists that he is going to come and do away with the presence of evil altogether. This verse, however, is in reference to a different kind of coming, okay? It's not his coming as a baby. No, but it's his coming to judgment. According to the verse, did you, did you, you, you kind of read it with me. He will suddenly come where? To his temple. All right, so here's this God of justice, this God of judgment. He said, I'm going to come. But it's not in the tone of voice as, uh, as a threat. It's more of a promise, okay? I'm kind of, I don't know if you, when you're playing with your kids, you're playing hide and seek, you're wrestling or whatever. I'm coming, you're coming up the stairs, down the hall, that kind of thing. No, it, it's, God is coming, but he's coming specifically to his temple. Why? Because the services of the sanctuary reveal how God deals with sin. The sanctuary of the services, I mean, sorry, the services of the sanctuary, they're not just ritualistic for routine's sake, just to keep the Levites and the, the people of Israel busy. No, it's revealing how God deals with sin. The psalmist says it best. Thy way, O Lord, is where? It's in the sanctuary, right? His way, his path, the road he takes to your heart and mind, how he saves us from sin. And it's not just pardoning our sin that is needed but actually cleansing us from sin, delivering us from the power of sin. That's why the sanctuary is made up of how many compartments? Three, three compartments. Actually, I guess technically it's, it's most holy place, holy place, and then the courtyard. But that, that's why there are three, com- I think of it in three compartments. The, the reason is because there are three different phases to God's dealing with sin. If it was just that we needed pardon, we would have only needed the courtyard, right? But there's more. There's, more. There's a holy place and a most holy place. Why? Because Jesus is not just our lamb. He is also our high priest. Because you and I need a savior who can not just pardon us from sin, but deliver us from the power of sin. And this is what God is going to do. He's going to come to his temple. And who can endure this? There's this question again. Another question in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure this God who comes to judgment in his temple. Actually, the answer is found at the very end of the chapter in verses 16 and 17. So go ahead and flip to the back of chapter 3. You don't get this glimpse, this answer to the question. So throughout your reading of chapter 3, this question is kind of lingering. Who can endure this? And according to verse 16 and 17, there are people that come out on the other end shining as gold. In verse 16, the Bible says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. Again, judgment language. For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Now notice what the Lord of hosts says. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my... What's the next word in your Bible? Your jewels. Awesome. On the day that I make them my jewels, uh, my footnote says literally special treasure. I like that. On the day that I make them my special treasure and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. 
Those who fear the Lord can endure this. Those who meditate on His name can endure this process of judgment. Those who belong to God, those are His special jewels, His special possession. And so whatever this judgment process is, whatever Jesus does as our high priest in the temple, what we know is that the result of it is that we come out His jewels. We come out His special treasure. We come out belonging to Jesus alone. Alone. And that's really the goal of judgment. I don't know if you're aware of this. When, when you hear the word judgment, or when you think of God as being the God of justice, I don't know if, if there's a, a kind of a, a sense of trepidation or anxiety that kind of flutters in your heart, that God is going to come and get us, that kind of thing. No, but really, when God comes to judge, He comes to save. I'll say it again. When God comes to judge, He comes to save. You see, the primary goal of God in the judgment is not destruction. It is salvation. The primary goal is always salvation. Now, in the process of saving us, he may need to destroy some things. But his primary goal is always salvation, not destruction. It's not just condemnation and guilt. What did Jesus say in John 3? He's talking to Nicodemus. He says, you know, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then it says in verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. His goal is not condemnation or destruction. His goal is salvation. And literally, when you think about it, there's a whole book in the Bible that's called Judges. And it's not a book about condemners. It's not a book about accusers. It's not a book about people who are destroying. You know what it's a book about? Deliverers. Saviors. There's a whole book about saviors, and it's called Judges. That's why Isaiah 33, verse 22, if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, do it. Isaiah 33, verse 22, for the Lord is our, what's the next word there? Judge. judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He, the judge, the lawgiver, the king, he will save us. Another sermon for another time, the good news of God's judgment. This is why, this is why judgment is cast in terms of the temple of Jesus, of God coming to his temple. The high priest comes to save us to the uttermost, right? Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. That's what the high priest comes to do. When he comes to judge, he comes to save and he saves to the uttermost. That's the good news. What, now, Malachi keeps going as he's kind of describing this picture of judgment. Who can endure? Go back to verse 2. He adds another layer to this picture of God as judge. Okay? And he uses an analogy and metaphor that the people of God were familiar with. But who can endure the day of his coming? This is verse 2. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like launderer's soap. Okay, so he's, a, he's a, 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 a heating agent. He's a fire. He's also a cleansing agent. But then it goes to the next level. He is not just a refining fire. He is the refiner. Notice verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will, he will purify the sons of Levi. And if you remember in chapter 2, the sons of Levi were being directly addressed for their spiritual failures. 
He's going to purify. He's going to refine and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. God is going to cleanse this priesthood of all believers that is giving him leftover worship. Oof. He's going to save to the uttermost. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And I love this, that salvation takes on this purifying dynamic. of, of uh, It's like salvation is now purification, of purging the dross so we can offer an offering in righteousness. Question, how does a refiner purify? A ref- what is it? Through the fire, exactly, exactly. The refiner has, has fire at, as his tools. And I would suggest to you that when God refines us, he's, he uses two particular refining fires. One is conviction. Conviction through his word. Uh, maybe you remember Jeremiah. His word was to me like fire shut up in my bones. And I could not hold it in. For Jeremiah, the fire of conviction of God's word was something that compelled him to not hold back, compelled him to obedience, compelled him to not neglect the duty that God had laid on him. That's what fire does. The fire of God's conviction kind of like makes us feel like it's getting hot in here. Like when you're reading something or hearing something and you realize, you know what, my life isn't matching up to this. For Jeremiah, this word, I just can't keep it in. For the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, maybe you remember they, they were talking with Jesus all the way back to their homes and they didn't even recognize him. But after he disappeared from their sight, they looked to one another and said, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us on the way? In other words, when God's word was sh- being shared to us as he was going throughout the Old Testament the, from Moses and the prophets and the writings and things like that, as he was explaining himself in all the scriptures, We sense this fiery word in our hearts. You know what it compelled them to do? It compelled them, one, to run all the way back to Jerusalem in the nighttime. But two, it also compelled them to shift from their unbelief to belief. When the fire of God's word sits in our heart, it moves us to obedience and it moves us to trust. But there's another kind of fire and another kind of fire that, I mean, just as conviction may not always be a pleasant thing, this one is... Is definitely not pleasant. <laughs> the fires of affliction. First Peter 1 talks about it in this way. You've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there are seasons in our life, and we've, we've talked about this in the past, There are seasons in our life where our trials and our afflictions, the things, the circumstances in our lives that are just unbearable and breaking and all the wheels are coming off at the same time, these are actually testing and trying our faith. Not that God is testing us to, you know, kind of, are you on my side? What he's doing is he's testing, he's teasing out that which is an impurity in our faith. See, the fires of conviction and affliction, I believe they smelt out who is master in our lives and what is motivation in our lives. In other words, it kind of teases out, just like, you know, uh, it's, it's in uh, Hebrews 4, it says that the Word of God is living and active, um, uh, discerning even between the thoughts and motivations of our hearts, right? And so when we go through conviction, when we go through affliction, 
these kinds of things kind of it teases out who we trust and also what we treasure and who who we depend on and what really drives us who our master is and what our motivation is and if you keep looking here in malachi go now um, a little more than halfway through verses 13 and 14 you get a kind of peek, sneak peek into the heart and mind of these, um, this remnant people who are giving God leftover worship. And in verses 13 and 14, the Lord says this, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? When they're asking this, when their internal dialogue is, is asking the question, what use is it? Do you, hear, do you hear the sentiment there? Like, does it really pay off to follow God? That's really what they're asking. I don't know, maybe you've asked this yourself. You know, why, why, why should I uh, reshape my life and reshape my priorities if, if really all this does is I end up walking as a mourner, as I'm, I'm miserable in life? And it asks or it makes us ask the question, why do we really worship? You know, what, what's, what's motivating? Why do we really follow God? I would submit that it's not so that we can be blessed. I would submit that we follow God because we've been blessed. Yeah? In other words, worship, worship is, is always a response to who God is and what he's done, not a manipulation of God to earn chips with him and get him to do more things for us. Trials and affliction, like Peter talks about here, and, and like this refiner that is wanting to uh, you know, purify us. Trials actually purge us of this this-for-that mentality to find that the true value of religion is a relationship with the God who is faithful, not just the rewards to hope that God is faithful. You see, this is, this is what the fires of affliction and conviction do, just kind of sift aside what we're really after. Is it because of what God has done or in order to get him to do more for us? And I want us to notice here, this, there's a, there's, as this picture of the refiner is developed, there's a particular position. I don't know if you noticed this. What's the position or posture of this refiner? Did you see that in verse 3? What's his physical position and posture? He's sitting, yeah. In other words, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Um, two postures, I think, that, and this might seem like just small details, but I think this is really significant. That when these fires of affliction and conviction kind of flood our lives, God is not just, you know, um, from a distance, throwing fire at us, hurling fireballs, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. no. He's a refiner who is sitting. He's not going anywhere. And he's very skillful and attentive to the process that he's engaging. That as judge, he's not haphazard. As judge, he's he's kind of turning up the flames of affliction. He's not doing this in a way that's helter-skelter, random, spontaneous. Uh, This is just what happened. No, there are things that he is intentionally and carefully doing in our lives. I love that. I mean, he's, he's not haphazard. He's very loving in this. And the other position, if you go down to verse 5, it says this, and I will come near you for judgment. 
The refiner is, is both sitting and he has come near to us in his, in his process of judgment. In other words, God's nearness, this may be hard to swallow, but God's nearness is actually most intimate when the fires of affliction are most intense. I'll say that again. Because we don't feel this and we don't even see this. Whether it's the fires of conviction or the fires of affliction. But God's nearness is actually most intimate when the fires are most intense. Psalm 34, I think it is. Yeah. The Lord is near to those of a broken heart and of a contrite spirit. In our affliction, he is afflicted. He bears us up in all of our burdens. When the, maybe, maybe this is going on right now. And you didn't know that God is, is sitting. He's carefully attentive. And he's, he's personally near. And the other assurance that comes in verse 6, Malachi continues, verse 6, it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Maybe you're feeling like the fires, or the, the remnants feeling, wah, wah, the fires of conviction and the fires of affliction are just way too hot. But you know what? You're not consumed. Why? Because I am the Lord, I do not change. This is a precious assurance when we're going through the fires of conviction or affliction. This is verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. God says that even though the pleasantness and prosperity of your circumstances may change, my heart towards you has not changed. Remember that assurance? Like the very, very first verse of Malachi, or maybe it was the second verse. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you. That's never going to change. Just this morning, I was reading through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is speaking to the people on the, on the verge of captivity. So several generations prior to Malachi, but God wants to assure them, I, I have heard of the Lord of old. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn. That's a love that is not going to change. I do not change, God says. My love for you does not change. And it's that reality that keeps us from being consumed in whatever fires we're experiencing. But what's crazy is that in those fires, it's that reality that we question the most. God, are you really what you said you were? Are you really who you were for Abraham and Isaac? And are you really the God who loves us with an everlasting love? It's that reality that keeps us from being consumed, but it's also that reality that, that is most severely questioned. Someone is in the purifying fires of conviction today. You're sensing that, ah, it is getting hot in here. I'm, <laughs> you know, I feel like you know God is calling me to this or asking asking for this or inviting me to this or maybe you're going through fires of affliction today it's a season where you just don't know which way is up you have no idea which way to turn but i want you to know something your circumstances may not change but god's love i'm sorry your circumstances may change but god's love for you will never change you're experiencing conviction maybe you may not know how to change in your life but i tell you god's love for you can make a way. I love that song, by the power of your love. This is how God does that work of transformation in our lives. And according to verse 6, it's because of his unchanging nature. It's because of his unchanging love. It's because of his unchanging character that you and I, we can go through these fires with the certainty 
that we're not going to be consumed. We're not going to be destroyed. In the refiner's fire, his invitation is, is strong and real. Notice verse 7. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Here's three simple words. Return to me. Return to me. And what's the promise? And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Kind of like, you know, that that phrase, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Bible's way of underscoring bold face. Really do this. This is true. This is return to me. This is the appeal of the refiner. This is all the refiner wants. Yes, it's, it's not destruction. It's always salvation. It may be purification, but ultimately it's restoration of a relationship. Restoration of a relationship. The refiner wants more than anything to remove all things that stand in the way of our relationship with him. He wants us to return. He wants us to return. And then in verses 8 through 10, there's some more dialogue here. This invitation of return, because the people are wondering, wait, 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 wait. We've already returned. <laughs> we were in Babylon. We were exiles, and we've already come back. How are we supposed to return more? How are we? So let's keep reading. Will a man rob God? I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And then here's this dialogue. But you said, in what way? In what way shall we return? Verse 8. God's going to get specific. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. I don't know if this dialogue was, you know, if Malachi could hear this kind of thing going on, but this is what God hears in people's hearts, you know? Hey, I want you to return. How are we supposed to return? Well, you guys have been robbing me. How have we robbed you? There's this obliviousness to this that is really sickening at times. These people, their heart, they may have returned to the land, but their hearts have not returned to God. And that's, that's the problem here. The refiner is making this appeal. And he's giving a, a, a very specific appeal. Bring all the tithes and offerings. Verse 9 goes on. You are cursed with a curse, bec- for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. Whew. Says the Lord of hosts. There again, that underscore. Says the Lord of hosts. Lord Almighty. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is heavy stuff, okay? There's a very specific appeal and very deep promises. What's the appeal? Bring all the tithes and offerings, right? And this is all part of the appeal to return to God. But what's the promise? Well, one, windows of heaven opened up. I don't know if you've ever wanted to see what the windows of heaven look like, but that windows of heaven are serious blessings that affect our practical reality. And in fact, in verse 12, notice this, and all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. That's a huge contrast to verse 9. I don't know if you caught that. We kind of glossed over it. In verse 9, it says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. In other words, they've been experiencing like literal curses in their lives. The first curses that are described in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, is thorns and briars. They're working hard to plow the land and things like that. Um, 
But their, their, their land is cursed. Their experience, it's, it's as if they put in all this labor, but nothing comes out. And God is going to say, hey, when you return to me tithes and offerings, the promise is that curse will be reversed. That's what the promise is. Now, I'm going to put a pause here on Malachi and just kind of uh, take a moment for some, some instruction and education. Maybe this is review for some. For others, this may be new. But this whole idea of tithes and offerings. Did you know that there's a difference? There's a difference there? Tithes and offerings. Literally, the word tithe means a tenth. Okay? It's a tenth of our increase, the Bible says. The tenth of our income. According to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, this is not our tenth. This is, sorry, this is, a, this is a, a tenth that belongs to God. It says a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's not something that we make holy. It's already something that is holy to the Lord. It belongs to him. And really what this is, tithe is a symbol that we belong to him. And it's the principle of part represents the whole, right? When we give God a seventh of our week, we represent that the entire week is his, right? When we give God a part of our time, the entirety of our time truly is his. That's what it's a symbol of. When we give God a tenth of our resource, of our income, we're saying, this is all yours. It's a principle of part representing the whole. And so tithe is something that belongs to him. And according to Numbers chapter 18, uh, when, when tithe was institutionalized, I mean, you, you kind of see tithe show up in Abraham's experience and then Jacob's experience. But by the time the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and God is reshaping his people, reshaping the nation, kind of setting them up for sustainability, he gives them instructions of what to do with that tithe, what to do with that tenth. And in Numbers chapter 18, the Bible says that the tithe was used to support the Levites, those who were, their, their sole responsibility was the, t- the care of the sanctuary services and things. So it was supporting those who were, who were fully invested in ministry. Now, tithe is different from offering because offering is a free will expression of our gratitude. It's not something that has a set parameter. Um, does that make sense? Well, tithe has kind of like, you know, this is, it literally means a tenth. Offering is something that it's really up to us as much as we want to give. I love this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17. It's the most clear for me. It says, every man shall give as he is able, right? It's not uh, a prescribed amount. It's just as we're able, according to the blessing of the Lord, your God, which he has given you. I think the NIV says, in proportion to the blessing of the Lord. In other words, when you recognize God's blessing, our offering is just kind of that practical affirmation. This is what we want to get, what we're able to give. That's Deuteronomy 16, verse 17. So that's the difference in what tithe and offering is. Now, what's the difference in the way tithe and offering is used? Uh, We would say this, tithe, at least in the Adventist church, and I love the way that the Adventist church has set this up, tithe is used to sustain gospel work, just like the tithe was used to sustain the Levites in the sanctuary. But it's used to sustain gospel workers around the world. Right? That, that's, a, that's actually a really big deal. You, you look at some uh, different communities of faith, some Christian uh, denominations and things will do things a little bit differently where they keep the tithe locally. But the Adventist church has set it up where tithe is brought locally, but it's distributed globally. Okay? And there's two beautiful things about this. One, tithe sustains gospel work around the world, not just locally, because that way you support God's work and not 
me and my wages. Okay, that's, that's not, it doesn't stay here in my pocket. Praise the Lord. All right, we can, we, can, we can be blessed by that. Why is that important? Because it makes sure that I work for God and not you and your wishes. Praise the Lord. Yeah? <laughs> okay? So, uh, you know, a pastor of a 300, 3,000 member church is taken care of by tithe from the global church just as much as a pastor of a 30 member church is taken care of by the tithe of the global church. That's a beautiful system, I think. God really set that up. Now, offering is different because offerings stay local and global. It has a global, global reach at times and a local reach at times. Used for local ministries as well as, you know, like global mission, voice of prophecy, uh, ADRA, things like that. So they fund specific ministries, whether local and abroad. Okay, that was my educational commercial. Um, George probably could have done that a lot better for me. <laughs> but anyways, so this is what tithes and offerings are today. Here in Malachi's time, let's kind of rewind the tape, go back to Malachi's. This remnant people, they were withholding tithes and offerings that belonged to God. And did you notice the language of God's questioning? Verse 8, will a man rob God? That's serious. That, that's, more, that's a little more intense than just stealing, right? That's a little more intense than just slipping something out of God's pocket. This, when I hear rob, I, I, I kind of think of more forceful, like uh, intimidating tactics. It's almost as if we're strong-arming God by withholding our things. This is pretty, God takes serious offense to this. Will a man rob God? And what's happening in Malachi's day is, like we said, they were experiencing curse. Their harvests had been devoured and failing. You hear that in verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. So they're already experiencing little. Do you hear this? This is the dynamics. that They're already experiencing, like, man, I've been working so hard but not getting anything back. And you can imagine the hesitancy about returning God or returning to God a tithe or an offering when they already had little. But to hold back their tithes and offerings or portions of it is actually considered robbing God, forcefully taking possession of something that's not yours. And this, this, this appeal seems to kind of come out of nowhere. You know, God is making his heart felt like, return to me. I want to restore relationship. Hey, let me talk to you about your money. You know, doesn't it? I don't know if that seems kind of out of the blue. But here... What God is after is he's really after the heart. He's really after the heart. And in many ways, our heart is tied to our things. Faithfully returning tithes and offerings is an expression of my trust in this reality. That all I have and all I am really belongs to God. This, this, uh, you know, this practice of sharing, returning to God our tithes and offerings is a practical demonstration. You might say it's, it's got a bi-directional focus. It's a practical demonstration of two things. One, appreciation for past blessings, right? God, you've given me this in the past. I am appreciating it. I'm aware of it. I am grateful for it. But the other direction is it's an anticipation of future providence. You may not feel like you've got a lot to give, but you're, you're saying, you know what? I trust in anticipation 
But God knows how to do more with my 90% than I do with my 100%. Every time. He's faithful. He is faithful. So it's a practical demonstration of, of our appreciation and gratitude of God's grace and blessings in the past, which is particularly true of offerings. And it's also a demonstration of our anticipation, a faith uh, expression that we give it not just because we already see God's blessings, but because we believe that those blessings are on their way, that he is going to open up the windows of heaven, whether I see it or not. And do you notice in verse 11, I'm not, sorry, not verse 11, verse 10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. It just dawned on me this week as I was reading this. The refiner is the one who is trying us, but he's the one that says, try me. The refiner who is turning out so carefully the fires of our affliction or conviction, he is trying us, but then he turns around and says, come on, try me. <laughs> try, see if I'm faithful and true to my word. The refiner wants us to test him to prove the genuineness of his trustworthiness. How? Why? Because God longs to recapture the remnant's heart. That's it. He's wanting this restored relationship. Why talk about my money? Because he wants your heart. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus tells us, For where your treasure is, there your what? heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Question today. Is your heart with God? then your treasure should be there too. If my heart is not with God, then what if by putting more of my treasure with God, more of my heart will follow? Does that make sense? I don't know. Sometimes we talk about chicken and the egg, what comes first. And yeah, sure, ideally, my heart should be with God and then as a result of that commitment, as a result of that restored relationship, then tithes and offerings follow, Right? But what if, what if my heart's not there? What if you tried starting with your treasure and then letting your heart follow? Does that make sense? I don't know, that's a challenge. I think that the refiner is saying, come on, try me, <laughs> try me. See if you put your treasure there and your heart will follow. Return to me, that's what he wants. Put your treasure with me and your heart will be with me. How many of you today want to say, yeah, I want to return to the refiner. Yeah? You want to return to the refiner? How is it that God wants you to do that? Whether you're, 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 <laughs> you're walking through your fires of affliction, I challenge you this week, give thanks for your affliction. Give thanks for your conviction. The conviction that you're not necessarily feeling comfortable with yet. The conviction that hasn't turned into action. Give thanks for that and see if your action follows. The refiner is sitting, and he's sitting skillfully, he's sitting lovingly, and he knows what he's doing. Give thanks for that. Give thanks for that. He's the unchanging one. He's not wanting to consume us. He's wanting to consume the things that hurt us. That he's more near in our adversity than in our prosperity. What? Not that we need to bring these things onto ourselves. He's the refiner. He knows how to turn up the flames. 
He's removing the dross. He's unearthing selfish motive, restoring his character in you and I so that eventually he can look like a refiner and see his reflection in that pure gold and silver. Give thanks, even in your affliction. The other thing I would say, if you want to return to your refiner, be faithful in tithes and offerings. Go ahead, put your treasure where your heart needs to be. Put your treasure where your heart needs to be. Actually make a plan. Pray about it as a household. And let God do the rest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you speak. You speak so clearly. And you speak so lovingly. And Lord, today, we look to you as our refiner. There's so much in our hearts that we know needs to be refined. Give us the good sense to not hang on to that. Give us the good sense to trust you in the process of whatever fiery conviction or affliction you bring on. Thank you, Lord, that you are coming and you come to save. We want to trust ourselves to you today. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen and Amen.